I invite you to take your Bible and open it up to John's Gospel. And we are still in the 12th chapter. And uh, we will be uh, through one more week. We will uh, continue to work our way through one step at a time. But let me read for you uh, this morning the passage that we're going to consider. And that would be verse 37 through verse 43. Scripture says, when Jesus said these things, he departed and hid himself from them. Though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him. So that word spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore they could not believe. For again, Isaiah said, he has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart in turn, and I would heal them. Isaiah said these things because he saw God's glory and spoke of him. Verse 42, Nevertheless, many even of the authorities believed in Jesus, but for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it, so that they would not be put out of the synagogue, for the love, or they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. Let's again bow in prayer and ask for help to understand and obey. Father in heaven, we we do ask that your word speak. And we do ask that we consider it as our portion for today, our, our food as it were. Lord, take something that can be difficult to understand. Open that to us. Do for us the opposite of what was done for those who rejected you, whose eyes were blinded and whose hearts were hardened. Lord, we would understand an open mind, an open heart, open ears and open eyes would be a grace gift from you. Be merciful to us. Give us eyes to see and ears to hear. We ask this in your name. Amen. Well, we have reached what amounts to a a major shift in the book of John as far as the contents of what John has arranged in order to convince us to believe that Jesus is who he said he was. And at the end of chapter 12, we are basically complete or finished with the public ministry of Jesus Christ. From this point forward in John's Gospel, all that we're going to see as far as Jesus, His teaching and His interaction with anyone, is much more of a private setting. Uh, This will be reserved for His disciples. Or, let's just say, um, a conversation between Him and Pilate. Or Him on His knees in Gethsemane, praying to His Father. But as far as Jesus standing on the hillside or standing from a boat or any of the other places or the, the outer court of the temple area, the public teaching of Jesus at this point, as John records it, is, is over. And again, we're in the last week of his life here on earth. Now, what we do find at the end of John's gospel, chapter 12, amounts to two summarizations. He's looking back on the first 12 chapters and 
summarizing what has taken place thus far. And there's actually two of them. And we look at one today. We'll look at the next next week as we finish out chapter 12. But this is verse 37 through 43. And if you look at it as his way of summarizing the results of three years worth of public ministry, he describes that by catching the previous verse. If you recall, the verse 36 is split between two paragraphs, actually. So he tells us that when Jesus had said these things, and we're to understand the last things that would be said publicly, he departed and hid himself from them. Though he had done many signs before them, they still did not believe in him. That's his summary. And it's, it's not a good one to consider the time and effort and the light that has been revealed to these who have witnessed these things. But this is not something that we should not have expected already. If we paid attention along the way and really paid attention to the prologue, first chapter, verse 10, He was in the world and the world was made through Him, yet the world did not know Him. He came to His own and His own people did not receive Him. So John has already told us that this would happen. Then he explained to us as it happened, and now he's summarizing that that's exactly what happened. So John, of course, is writing these things years after these events took place. But as he closes the chapter on the things Jesus did before the eyes of his own people, his general assessment of Jesus' work thus far And the way he writes almost carries a tone of of hopelessness. That's what it sounds like. And this is nothing new. We know this. At every turn he has said that these people have not believed. But from this vantage point in dramatic fashion, the view is quite catastrophic. As far as the first advent, God sending his own son to the planet. And after three years of public ministry, there are no takers. Now, I I pulled something from the work of John Piper, which has to do with this passage of Scripture. And this is the way that he set up his, his message, his remarks, almost as if a conscious... A disclaimer as to the, the bumps in the road along a study of this passage. He says, To study this requires that you make sure you know and embrace this one truth. Jesus and John don't tell us sad things to leave us sad. They tell us sad things in the end to make us glad. The dark things in the Bible are spoken for the sake of light. The ugly things are spoken for the sake of beauty. The painful things are spoken for the sake of comfort. The sorrowful things are spoken for the sake of joy. And conflict, which we see here, is pictured for the sake of peace. We know this because Jesus says in John fifteen eleven that he spoke his word so that our joy might be made full. And John says in John 20, 31, that he wrote this book so that we might have eternal life. And both the words of Jesus and the stories of John have dark and sad things in them. So when we know those dark and sad things are present, 
Those things are there for our joy and for our life. That's how John Piper started his message. We've studied and we've been good students. And we know John's record is nowhere near an exhaustive list of Christ's miracles. John said so himself. Many more signs Jesus did the presence of his disciples that are not written in this book. But so far, just, just to paint the picture, a rehearsal of where we've been, Jesus began by turning water into wine. He then healed an official's son in another town remotely. He healed a paralyzed man at the pool of Bethesda. That was chapter 5. He fed 5,000 men and their families on the banks of the Galilee. That was chapter 6. Then he walked on the water. Then he healed a man who was blind from birth. And then in the previous chapter, he raised his friend Lazarus from the dead after being dead for four days. Now, when John is referring to they, he's referring to those who've witnessed all, if not a majority of these things. So the question is, was it not enough proof? Could Jesus have done a better job of saying that he's different than any man who's ever lived? What more could he have done? And I think John would have us believe right here The problem is not with Jesus. The problem is with these people. And to explore that takes some some doing. Because there's more going on than just these people. And what we're going to learn is there's actually the hand of God active in their lives, carrying out the very consequences of their own disobedience as they grow more and more blind to the truth that Jesus is telling them. Now Paul told us, for just adding some things up here, that 500 men met with Jesus after his resurrection. We also know that near the day of Pentecost, after Christ's ascension, 120 men were gathered when Matthias was chosen to replace Judas as the 12th man. But here, where John is saying this, at this point in Jesus' ministry, Jesus has 12 men. That's it. And since one of them was a devil, we better just say 11. 12 minus 1. So what does John do here in explanation to such a severe report on the effectiveness of Jesus' ministry up until this point? Because what you've got here is the necessity to explain how the Jews, who are the people of God, could not recognize and outright reject the Messiah of their God's promise. It's it's not like this was some small thing. They'd been talking about this, looking for this, for generations. And they've all practically missed it. Now, it'll be tough for us because we're positioned... On the other side of two millennia worth of church history. Church history which is, for all intents and purposes, a very Gentile thing. It's such that we've come to just understand and expect that there are very few Jews that are part of the church of Jesus Christ. 
But if we try to transport ourselves back to what we're reading here, and especially after the resurrection and ascension, as these 11 and then 12 men are commissioned to go first into Jerusalem, to Judea, to Samaria, to the other most parts of the world, how do you explain to the Jew that Jesus was who he said he was when the whole nation practically rejected him? That's going to be tough. So what does John do in order to answer this question and explain how this could have happened and what does this mean? He goes to the Old Testament to explain this. And he goes to the prophet Isaiah. If you just for a running start into what he says, look at verse 37. Though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him. Verse 38, so that the word spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. And it's in two sections, actually from two locations in Isaiah's prophecy. The first is much later, the second is in chapter 6. But Lord, who has believed what he heard from us, or who has believed our report you have another translation and to whom is the arm of the Lord been revealed and then verse 39 as if we might hope that John is making a suggestion perhaps this is why they don't believe John just lays it right out in plain black and white therefore they could not believe they're incapable of it for again Isaiah said he has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. Then 41, Isaiah said these things because he saw the glory, or his glory, and spoke of them. So not only does this prophecy that John gives us as a reason for what has happened over the last three years, it doesn't just describe the unbelief. The unbelief is described as people who didn't listen to the message and didn't see the power of God in the signs. But it also explains it. It explains that they couldn't believe and answers the question, why shouldn't they have believed when they heard when these signs were unmistakably valid? I think it's worth our time. This may be more scripture. I wouldn't say than we've ever read in the middle of a sermon. Uh, but this is one of those things I think it's just a good practice for us to see with our own eyes or at least hear with our own ears. If you want to write these references down and look at them later, uh, that would be a good idea uh, because turning through them would take even more time. But what I want to show is that John is not the only one who's saying this. In fact, in Matthew's Gospel, and this is the 13th chapter in the 13th verse, this is Jesus, verse 10, the, the disciples came to him, have backed up a bit. Why do you speak to them in parables? And he answered them, to you it has been given to know the secrets of heaven. So they get it, they're listening and they're understanding. But to them it has not been given. For the one who has, more will be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. This sounds very reminiscent of last week when he's saying, use the light that you've been given. Walk in the light while you have it. You won't have the light forever. 
Verse 13, this is why I speak to them in parables, because seeing they do not see, hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. Indeed, it is their case. The prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled, that says. So Jesus himself is using Isaiah 6 to explain why some people understand a parable and other people don't understand the parable. It's, it's basically the same thing, but less abbreviated as we see it in John. Jesus says, you will hear, he's quoting Isaiah, you will indeed hear, but never understand. You will indeed see, but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull, and with their ears they can barely hear. Their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their heart, and turn, and I would heal them. But blessed are your eyes, for they see. This is Jesus speaking to those that are listening to him. And your ears, for they hear. For truly, I say to you, many prophets and righteous people long to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. You've been given something. Take full advantage of it. Then in Mark's gospel, we went through this two weeks ago on a Wednesday evening discussing an introduction on how to understand parables. Same thing. And when he was alone, those around him with the twelve asked him about the parables. They said to him, To you it's been given the secret of the kingdom of God, but for those outside, everything is in parables. It's confusion to them. So that they may indeed see but not perceive, may indeed hear but not understand, lest they should turn and be forgiven. So Matthew said it. Mark said it. Luke said it in chapter 8, verse 10. And when his disciples asked him what this parable meant, he said, To you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of God, but for others they are in parables, so that seeing they may not see and hearing they may not understand. Same thing, just condensed a bit. And then there's the book of Acts, the transitional book between the Gospels and the Epistles that give to us all the ways in which the word of God went out and God added people to his church as they heard the word believed and were wondrously saved. This is toward the end of Acts. This is Paul speaking to a bunch of men who'd gathered. Verse 23, when they had appointed a day for him, Acts 28, 23, they came to him at his lodging in greater numbers. From morning till evening he expounded to them, testifying to the kingdom of God and trying to convince them about Jesus from both the law of Moses and from the prophets. He's got his work cut out for him. Some were convinced by what he said. Others disbelieved. And disagreeing among themselves, they departed after Paul made one statement. After this statement, they walked out. What was the statement? Paul says, The Holy Spirit was right in saying to your fathers through Isaiah the prophet, Go to this people and say, You will indeed hear, but never understand. You will indeed see, but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull, and with their ears they can barely hear, and their eyes have been closed. Then verse 28, Paul says, Therefore let it be known to you that this salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles. They will listen. And I suppose if you're a group of Jews... You may be offended by such a statement. There's a lot of people that are offended by such a statement to think that, all right, so I can go to church and I can listen as the scriptures are taught. 
But if I don't have eyes to see and ears to hear, none of it's going to make sense to me. And it looks as if God is involved in blinding eyes and hardening or petrifying hearts. So what we've got is John quoting Isaiah, Matthew, Mark, and Luke quoting Jesus who's quoting Isaiah, and Paul quoting Isaiah, all for the purpose of showing that unbelief is the result of the rejection of light that has been given to you, which by the sovereign law of God gradually makes belief impossible. Anytime the question of why the Jews don't believe Jesus comes up in the New Testament, this prophecy is quoted as the answer to it. As if it had been going on in Isaiah's day, and it was going on in Jesus' day, and it continues to go on in Paul's day, stating that the cumulative effects of unbelief is a hardened attitude that becomes more impenetrable as time progresses. So when John says that they could not believe, he does not mean that the blinding takes place without the will or against the will of the people. Same with the hardening of their heart. These men chose first to harden their hearts. They were the first mover. It was their fault. And it's clear they were responsible for it. And just to be clear here, John is not only comparing the unbelief of Isaiah's day and Jesus' day, he's reminding us of an ongoing dealing with the backsliding people, the backsliding people of God over the entire history of his relationship with them. I mean, one sermon at some point, uh, we took some time to just think our way through the, the highlights of God's interaction with his people on this planet. It started out in a garden with two and a very clear command that was broken And as such, the relationship between God and man was broken. But God determined to continue to work with them and to reveal himself to them. And we see these magnificent events that take place, including a flood and a new start. And then a Tower of Babel where the men went in a totally different direction and their languages were confounded to spread them out. And then for God to choose one man out of many, Abraham, to be the father of a people he would call his people. They would be his God. He would be their God. And through dramatic turns of events, uh, through his sons and their sons, and and a, a period of bondage in Egypt, and Moses, and the Exodus, and then the conquest of the land and judges that would hold down the fort before there were were prophets. And then the kings that were given along with the prophets. And then down to 400 years of silence after the Spirit of God had left these people for centuries worth of idolatry and wandering away. The last prophet John the baptizer breaks the silence and to the earth it's revealed that God has chosen not to use prophets or priests or kings but to just bind all that up in one and send his own son 
to do it himself. To make sure that these people actually hear what needs to be heard. So that once the message is declared finally, in the years of all, judgment can take place. And he can gather his own to himself. And those who will not believe, punished eternally. That, that's basically the way this all works out. But who sits in the place of privilege among the world and having access to the revelation of God to man but his chosen people, the Jews? But they wouldn't listen. And it's not like they just decided at some point, all right, we're tired of this. It was from the beginning to the end. It was God who called them a stiff-necked people. And then to carry this forward to where we live today, it's always a good idea before we start thinking ill of another group of people to, to apply that own depravity check. If there were a second place for a group of people who've had an embarrassment of riches as far as access to the truth of God, would it not be the nation who presumes to be one nation under God? I think that's very true. An embarrassment of riches. Now, we're separated from each other today, but for this entire nation's history, we've gathered in places like this, and we've heard sermons every week of our lives. We've got libraries full of men who are alive and men who've been long dead to explain these scriptures to us. We've got numerous copies of the scriptures in our homes. But we're routinely distracted. And if we just look at our lives and where our allegiance lies, how we spend our money, how, what we say, what we do, if others were looking at this removed from our context, they might wonder if we don't fit a group of people whose ears have been stopped and their eyes are growing dim. No other group of people has squandered more light of the revelation of God than His chosen people. Nor am I afraid those of us who call ourselves Americans. Now John doesn't want to leave us with the notion that none of these leaders believed. And just like John, he'll turn on a dime. Even saying things that seem as though they don't fit with what he just said. Verse 42, nevertheless, many, even of the authorities, believed in him. But for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it, so that they would not be put out of the synagogue. For they love the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. Now, I've spent time studying this, as I do with each of these messages. All weeks are different. Some get more study some gets less some needs more some needs less sometimes I'm left more confused than others and this is one of those passages where I don't know what to tell you as to how to estimate the belief that's described in verse 42 I don't know if it's the fake stuff from chapter 2 and chapter 6 or if it's the real stuff what I do know is they had a significant reason to keep quiet But does their keeping quiet betray the quality of that belief? 
it seems the latter part in verse 43 has to do with inclusion. End of 42, rather. Being thrown out of the synagogue. And 43 looks as though it might have more to do with popularity. The glory that comes from men. But it may, may very well have meant that this decision had to do with the preservation of their own lives. And in time, that would become a very big decision. Speak up and die for it. But as to what's described here, I don't know. So I think it's in our best interest. We've, we've scoured the contents of this passage here. We've looked at other places in Scripture where we find the same thing. So I think it's time for a, fl- a few conclusions What do we make of this? We're not Jewish, we're Gentile. We're 2,000 years removed from what's going on here. But how do we understand what John is saying? And from other places in Scripture, how can we make sure we're not letting what we understand him to say, to say too much, or not enough? So here's a few conclusions. Number one, and this will get us into some theological territory. God's sovereignty in these matters is never pitted against human responsibility. I'll say say it one more time if you're writing them down. Our first conclusion is that God's sovereignty in these matters is never pitted against human responsibility. And you'll find that to be true across the pages of Scripture, where you will find passages that emphasize the sovereignty of God. You will also find passages of Scripture that emphasize the responsibility of man. And when we're looking at something like this, okay, who's, who's to blame for this? Is this man's fault for not listening, or is this God involved in making it hard for them to listen? One would be God's sovereignty. One would be man's responsibility. But in this passage, we see them both. And they are not pitted against each other as if one excludes the other or one eliminates the other or that you both can't have the same in the same room at the same time. This is big theological language here. And it is heavy theological thinking. And uh, it's at this point where I, I... I think it's good to talk about the tension that's between the two of them. There is tension involved. It's not that if you find someone who's smart enough and godly enough and credentialed enough, academically or, or experientially, that they'll get it and, and it'll make total, complete sense to them. No, this doesn't make sense to us. Especially when we try to straddle them both. One might make sense away from the other, but we've got to be careful there because they're both taught in the Scripture. And denominations and academic institutions have lined up on either side of a valley of tension in between to say we don't want to be down there, we want to be on one side or the other. The Bible doesn't give us that privilege or luxury. The tension is, is felt here in this passage. And I think what it is in the place where you might find comfort, even though the Lord is not going to just touch your mind and open it so that you can see as he sees, where your ways will then be as high as his. But we've been tied to our creator from the very beginning. And if you go back to the Garden of Eden, 
what we see there is not what some other religions of the world have where they can pick whatever God they want at any time to blame for any good thing or bad thing. And basically it's up to them to decide which God they want at what time for what purpose to make sure they're completely and totally in control themselves at all times. In the Garden of Eden there's one God who created two people and he gave them very clear and explicit rules. They broke those rules after he had told them if they did he would punish them. And since then that relationship between him and them has been very strained, broken and without his sovereign initiation, hopeless of ever having any meaningful communication or any communication, period, without his first moving. We're dead in Christ. For him to awaken us to understand anything at all is a gift of grace. So when we're trying to figure out, all right, in this relationship that you've given to me, in grace that I don't deserve, what part of this is on you and what part of this is on me? How do I relate to a God merciful enough to save me when I should be punished? How do I thank Him for initiating that process to begin with? How do I step up and make decisions on my own to look and live Speak like the one who saved me. It's always a shared tension. And in some passages of Scripture, you're going to be told to stand on your own two feet and do this. And other passages are going to come along and, and, and scoop you up off the ground and tell you the things that are good in you are God's hand in your life. And lift you back up after you feel like a failure in trying to do anything on your own. This is mysterious. And here, as in anywhere else, God's sovereignty is never pitted against human responsibility. We even see the contrast here in this passage. In verse 37, nobody believes. In verse 42, some of them do. It's almost as vivid as in the 11th chapter, or the 11th verse of the first chapter. He came into this world and, and they rejected him. But then, those who did believe, he gave the right to be his children. So we've got both of these things living on the same street as next door neighbors. Right here in the scriptures. Number two. As we quickly approaching running out of time. Unbelief is not blamed on God in a predestinarian sense. But is rather described as a punishment from God. I use that word predestinarian sense. Some would like to say that we'll just lump what we see here as the blinding of eyes over with the idea of predestination. That, that just like we were chosen before the foundations of the world that are His, which is true, so He chose before the foundation of the world to blind some so they'd never see it. That is not what we are taught in Scripture. That is not the way Jesus acts. Though he does abandon unbelieving people to themselves, allowing them to blind their own eyes and harden their own hearts. Again, there's tension here. And it would be easy for us to read this, disapprove as if the Lord is stacking the deck in his favor taking away from man the choice that he gave him in the garden. 
Again, to borrow from the previous point, we want to run to God so He'll fix our problems, all the while forgetting that our biggest problem is God Himself. We've sinned against Him. And He promised to punish sin with death. And then He gave us His Son to die in our place. And anytime we see someone's heart harden, it is because they hardened their heart first. All the way back to Pharaoh. Before we read that God hardened his heart, we read that Pharaoh hardened his own heart. So we're not to understand that this unbelief was the result of God's action to prevent belief. God doesn't do that no more than he tempts people to sin. His half-brother James made that abundantly clear. We're tempted when we're drawn away of our own lusts and enticed. Same here. But God does ratify human decision in spite of all the light He's given man or woman who continues to refuse that light. There comes a time when God gives them over to their choices. In respect of their human responsibility, they are allowed their own blindness and hardness. Number three. Human responsibility for sin and unbelief is never excused in the Bible. And if it was all God's business, it wouldn't be fair to accuse us for something that He controls. Human responsibility for sin and unbelief is never excused in the Bible. That God has clearly said in Isaiah and here in John to have had a hand in human affairs and actions in terms of blinding eyes and petrifying hearts in order that Israel would not come to healing is not something that we just add up from a lot of passages in Scripture theologically, hit the, the equals button, and here we have a theological principle. This is said in plain verbiage. It's indisputable. God is hardening people's hearts who first hardened their hearts. So it is a punishment. Same as a punishment for sin. And it's never excused in the Bible. God takes sin seriously. So serious, He would sacrifice His own Son in order to save the likes of us. And number four, and I know these are, these are adding up. This one I think could encompass the rest. And maybe it's useful just to say the same thing in different ways, hoping that some of it will stick or turn on the light bulb. Number four, God is sovereign over all belief and unbelief in such a way to exalt His sovereignty and preserve our responsibility. God can still be God. He can handle this. Even if it doesn't make sense in our heads based on the position where we stand. God is sovereign over all belief and unbelief. Such a way to exalt His sovereignty and preserve our responsibility. I'll just read to you those twelve or two verses, three verses in the first chapter of John. He was in the world, and the world was made through Him. Yet the world did not know Him, he came to his own, and his own people did not receive him because of their prior sins against the revelation of God. But to all who did receive him, many of which were Jews, 
who believed in his name. Sounds like responsibility, doesn't it? He gave the right to become children of God who were born not of blood, that is their lineage, nor of the will of the flesh, their own idea, nor of the will of man, their own ideas as far as their creativity, but of God. So how do I account for all this, especially one who stands and speaks and explains Scripture? I think you probably have learned enough over the almost two years we've been together that I'm only but so comfortable uh, in the places where one's head hurts or, or, or comfortable talking about complex theological truth. There's a place for all of that. We need it all. I wasn't giving the processor to organize enough to write books. But the Lord has, has been gracious enough to put men in my life that could help me sort through and simplify some of these complex things to the point where I'm able to open my hands and trust the Lord with these things and stand unashamedly in front of others and explain the same. But what we've got and what the world has had since God's Word was given to this planet. Wherever it's spoken, if it's over the radio, or if it's listening to someone standing behind a box, or if it's mom with her children at the table in the afternoon or in the morning, there are two things that happen. You're familiar with the verse that God's Word will not go forth and return void. That it won't come back to Him having not accomplished His purposes. And the hard pill to swallow with the passage like this is that there are two things that happen with His Word that goes out. We want to think, we want to use that verse to say we hope it doesn't return void, that it'll go out and do all those good things of changing and restoring and bringing people into the family of God. But the truth is, there are some ears that that Word will fall on. And the result of that Word on their ears is a further hardening and rejection of what they refuse to believe. While at the other side those ears that are open and are hearing are softened and drawn closer to the Lord and as a result become more like Him and less like themselves. And there is no such thing ever when God's Word goes out, whether it's in a sermon or over a podcast. There's no neutral ground. No one hears the Word of God and, 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 and walks away the same as they did before they heard it. Either they are softened or they are hardened. Because that's what God's Word does. It's sharper than any two-edged sword. Able to pierce between the soul and the spirit, the joints and the marrow. It will undress you, open you, and show you who you are. And you either lay down for that and allow the Lord to do His work. Or you want to run away from it. How dare you tell me who I am and who you are to me. I'll be myself. So the word goes out. And God is sovereign over who believe and who do not. And at the end of the day, it's all put to us to listen, to use the light that we have. 
before we don't have it anymore. And folks, this is not the end. It's the end of this passage we study today, but we pick up with verse 44 and then on into the rest of the book. If you remember, and this is just a, a this is kind of the, uh, the sneak peek at the end of the episode to tell you what to expect to come. If you remember back to the first year, previous episodes where Jesus was asked for a sign and John has given us seven of them and he says they weren't enough well the sign they asked for Jesus replied destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up they laughed they said it took forever to build this building and you're going to build it back in three days what's wrong with you we know what that meant it had to do with his crucifixion and then in another gospel Jesus is said to answer a question by saying an evil and adulterous generation asks for a sign and no sign will be given to that evil and adulterous hard-hearted generation but the sign of Jonah. He went on to say just like Jonah was in the belly of the fish for three days so the Son of Man will be in the earth the tomb, the grave for three days. So what he's saying is that's the ultimate sign. Almost as if to dismiss all the other signs is not really being signs compared to that being signed. So the idea is that the sign that would complete God's revelation of himself to the world, the last piece of the puzzle, would be his son's cross and resurrection. At this point, that's yet to be done. And there's hope for it any of these men none of their hard heartedness is any match for the mercy the grace of God the final sign is yet to come I don't know about you but reading through this book we're only halfway through are you not amazed at at the repetition of opportunities at every turn for John to put right in front of your face the same question that the whole book is designed to elicit. Do you believe? Christian, it's been saved for a long time. Do you believe? And it's never talked about as being a one-time thing in the past where you say a prayer and it's done. It's always a continual thing. What about now? Do you believe? Now, if he's talking about our being reborn, that's always seems to be at a point in time that we have nothing to do with. But what we do have something to do with is whether or not we believe based on the light we've been given. Do you believe? Let me pray, and then I'll read a benediction, and we'll close with a song. But let's ask the Lord to seal this to our hearts father in heaven we thank you for more time together in your word scattered across our town we thank you for the light that you have given us and the availability to communicate that light lord bless our congregation bless our families bless our relationships one with another Lord, give us encouragement. Help us to keep on keeping on. Give us faithfulness. Give us more light, Lord. Show us parts of ourselves we could never see if this thing hadn't happened. 
Teach us things about each other. But most of all, teach us things about yourself. We thank you for being honest in your words. We know you're honest, but the, the, the extent you went to explain how things work, even if they sound confusing at the beginning, we thank you for your sovereignty. And Lord, if we have any inclination to know you at all, may we fall on our face and thank you for a soft heart, open eyes and open ears by the grace of God. We ask all these things in your name. Amen. That passage that John spoke of to begin with was Isaiah 53. He used the first verse, Who has believed what has been heard of us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? But he goes on. For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. But surely he has borne our griefs, carried our sorrows, yet we esteem him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Amen.